You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Silver Screen Science. Woohoo! This is our series where we talk about the science of movies. This episode, we are discussing Jurassic World Dominion. Less woohoo. Well, that's a, this is the latest <laughs> film in the Jurassic World franchise, the third of the Jurassic World trilogy, as it were. For those of you who are new to Silver Screen Science, or those of you who have forgotten, what we do in this series is discuss the science of movies, but not just the nitpicky, what they got right, what they got wrong. More particularly, we are interested in how science and scientific concepts are represented in movies. How do movies do? How do they how do they pr- depict these concepts when they try to do so? Where does Jurassic World Dominion fit in that cross-section of science and pop culture? Jurassic World Dominion was released this month, June 2022, from Universal Pictures, directed by Colin Trevorrow, same guy who did the last two, mm-hmm. and this Dear listeners, is your official spoiler warning. We are going to be discussing the entire film, and we are absolutely going to be talking about major plot points and stuff that happens at the end of the movie. Yes. That's going to be important. Lots and lots to say. Scientifically, like they touch on a bunch of things that happen at the end of the film or are big reveals or whatever. Yes. So, Will, would you like to give us a brief synopsis of the movie? Happily. So, following the last film, where a bunch of dinosaurs were released into the wild instead of being gassed to death, we now have a world where dinosaurs are intermingled with our wild habitats and, due to a black market trade, globally intermingled. They are have been spread across basically every continent, as far as the intro to the film shows, and a new shady corporation, Biosynth, has been given the task of starting to corral and starting to uh, house and begin to handle this problem. Yeah. For clarification, Biosyn was around since the first Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Now they're back. Yes. Now it's the big uh, deal evil corporation of this movie. Absolutely. Also, in line with parallel with all of this, there's a new plague of giant locusts eating the crops all over the country, our country, North America, at first and causing major havoc, and our protagonists are brought into it because Biosyn has kidnapped Macy, the clone child from the first from the last film, and is believed to be responsible for said locusts, so all the heroes are coming from different directions to take down the bad billionaire. And that's that's basically what they do. And there's a bunch of dinosaurs. And then there's dinosaurs. Also there are dinosaurs here in this there, dinosaur movie. Which is yeah, no, that does that that's how it feels. <laughs> and then there are some dinosaurs. <laughs> so we are going to d- discuss the science. If, uh, by chance, you are interested in our personal thoughts about the movie, non-sciencey, just moviegoer thoughts, we will also be releasing a more thoughts episode on our Patreon for patrons uh, among their bonus audio that they get to listen to. So check that out. <gasps> Let's talk scientific concepts. Let's talk scientists. But first, as is our tradition... Let's talk about the animals in the movie. Which there are a bunch of. There are tons. In fact, we're not going to list all of them. No. Uh, which we've done in the past. 
Uh, but there, there are so many ancient animals represented in this movie. This is almost surely the most chock-a-block of all the films yet for just number of species. There's a bunch of classic Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World stuff. We get Tyrannosaurus, mm-hmm. we get Velociraptors, we get Dilophosaurus. There's at least a couple different sauropods. There's at least, I think there's supposed to be three different ceratopsians, horned yep. dinosaurs, stegosaurs, ankylosaurs, uh, bunches of the old school. Bunch of the old pterosaurs we've seen. Yep, yeah, dimorphodon, pteranodon, uh, the compsognathuses are yep. in there. Yep, yep, yep. There are some new things, things that are new. That, some of them were in the prologue thing that we discussed at the end of last year. These include Giganotosaurus, mm-hmm. which is the new biggest carnivore that ever lived uh, for this particular Jurassic Park movie. Yep. Allosaurus shows up. Atrociraptor shows up for a chase scene in Malta, I think is where that takes place. Yes. Moros, the little fuzzy theropod dinosaur. Allosaurus makes a brief appearance. Pyroraptor in full feathered regalia and also it swims. And Therizinosaurus uh, with its big long claws and all of its other stuff. There's also a bunch of stuff that isn't ancient reptile stuff mm-hmm. like not dinosaurs not pterosaurs oh the mosasaur is also in this movie but we also have dimetrodon yeah early synapsid a dicynodont that i've seen identified as lystrosaurus mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the beaked uh, sometimes tusked early mammal cousins and of course very central to the plot giant prehistoric locusts or at least locusts that have been modified with prehistoric dna they never made it clear whether these were supposed to be resurrected right cloned locusts it sounded like they were meant it was we have given them ancient dna yes which has made them giant and terrifying exactly so it sounded like they took locusts and spliced in some dna from something extinct like they they don't say what it is yeah. just I... <laughs> cretaceous dna i think is what's said one at yes one point. i think they say cretaceous dna i saw one movie reviewer refer to them as dinosaur locusts yes which i think is probably the mentality that the filmmakers had uh when creating these creatures that's definitely the feeling <laughs> i got from the film is just you know well we took dna from these big awesome animals and put them into locusts obviously that's why they're so big and awesome now Uh, which right off the bat is tapping into one of those very common misconceptions about paleontology Mm -hmm. that that relating ancient things to big and scary and powerful that just all the things in the past were bigger and scarier and worse and that just by virtue of being prehistoric or even just having prehistoric dna in them these locusts are bigger and stronger and worse than they otherwise would be. Exactly. That, that's actually a really common trope. Oh, yes. In paleontology-related media. Well, it's it's a very similar, you know, it's a more complicated version of it, but it feels basically like the old cartoon de-evolution rays. That, I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen those show up in a Johnny Quest-type stuff all the way to just silly versions. Oh, yeah. uh, they um, were in the uh, Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically just, yeah, like... It, this is a array that takes you back to your prehistoric origins, which always means turns you into the bigger, badder, more intimidating version of whatever you are. Because right. everything in the past was big, was, bad, was monsters. And, yes, exactly. Which brings us to our the, the topic we talk about all the time in Silver Screen Science, the phenomenon that we like to call monsterification. Yes. Uh, we've talked about this all throughout the Jurassic Park franchise. This is uh, our term, and we're not the only ones that you. I've seen this term used elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, for when a movie or other form of fictional media 
takes a thing that would otherwise be a normal animal and gives it behaviors or traits that make it more fitting for a movie monster and less reasonable as an actual living creature. Yes. This movie might be the most monsterified of any of the movies in the franchise. I'd say so. There is very little believable animal behavior in this movie. And they have gone full-on monsters with absolutely. basically all the creatures. Yeah, even when they're not doing something scary or dangerous, they have distilled all the dinosaurs and all the creatures down to these very, very simplistic, mm-hmm. very convenient behaviors, very dramatic behaviors. And it, yeah, it's nonstop through the whole film. Even the ones that we're supposed to sympathize with, like Blue and yeah. Blue's baby, Beta, who Blue's, is Blue's one of the clone features. Baby. Yeah. Blue, yeah, Blue, it was, it's so funny because Blue is the mother and now she has a child and we're going to save the child. And like our main characters are friends with the baby. Yes, but just like the last couple movies, every second Blue's on screen, it's tense because it's she's on the verge of murdering the humans that I guess are kind of supposed to be her friends. Yep. And she's screeching and roaring and screaming. And even the ones we're supposed to like are just, they're just monstery. Well, and even the baby, uh, there was two scenes that stood out to me about the baby. <laughs> yeah. Like the baby is supposed to be cute, but they're still like, oh, it's a raptor. You know, it's dangerous. And the way they show that is two different scenes. One at the very beginning when Blue and Beta are hunting and they see a rabbit. And they're sneaking up on the rabbit, and then a wolf comes out of nowhere and tackles the rabbit instead. Yes. And then Beta, who is about the size of a large chicken. At yes. like very small. Like, not very big at all. Tackles the full-grown, what looked to be like a timber wolf, mm-hmm. and attacks it. They, we don't see what happens, but... But Beta comes back. We just are shown a scene to be like, well, Beta's so ferocious at this young age. It's taking on full-grown wolves, mm-hmm. which weigh about the same amount as a full-grown human. Like, that's a... <laughs> or a full-grown velociraptor. Yeah, like, that's a big animal. <laughs> so, they have that scene. And then at the end, when they're trying to get Beta back, yes. <laughs> they Chris, get it. Chris Pratt, mm-hmm. o- Owen, Alan Grant. The old school cast comes back, by the way. Yes. And <laughs> so we see Grant, Sattler, and Malcolm, and we've got Owen, Claire, uh, Clone Girl, Maisie, and then some other people. Uh, so Owen, Grant, and Maisie are trying to recapture Beta, who is loose in the facility. Yes, and they do the whole put the hand out thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we will also talk about. Yep. Because uh, that gets overused in this film. But they put the <laughs> hand out, and they're distracting Beta while Owen tries to get a shot at the neck. With a tranquilizer. With a tranquilizer to be able to capture Beta and bring her bring her back to blue and the way he gets the shot is when beta full-on charges dr grant yes with intent to kill a full-grown human standing completely upright just going for his ankles i guess that is something continuous through this movie that what the animals do is attack people yes attack things a lot of dinosaurs and other animals in this movie are on screen for about three minutes Mm -hmm. just long enough to attack people Yep, just Ketzel, to remind us that they're dangerous. Quetzalcoatlus shows up, attacks a cargo plane, mm-hmm. tears it apart with its super strength, right? Sticks its fingers through the glass and drags its thin-boned beak yep. through the metal of the plane and then flies away. Yeah, just leaves. Having done what it came to do. Yeah, and, having inflicted violence. Yep. It's also enormous. Oh, yeah. Uh, much like the Mosasaur. The Mosasaur also is on screen for about... 10 seconds attacking stuff. 
Uh, even Therizinosaurus. Yes. Uh, Therizinosaurus, we see really do three things the entire movie. It's barely on screen. It, for no reason, just demolishes a deer. Yep. Just whacks it, takes it out, just because that's what it does as a dinosaur. It terrorizes Claire, mm -hmm. threatening to, I guess, bite her head off or something. Or stab her, or just smack her around too, I guess. And then it, uh, and we gave you a spoiler warning, impales the Giganotosaurus on its Wolverine claws Yep. at the end of the movie. Uh, and here's another thing. So uh, we've talked about monsterification traits in terms of just hyper-violence and super-strength and all that. The thing that got me in the Therizinosaurus scene, and this is not new, they have literally been doing this since the first movie, but it really stood out to me in the Therizinosaurus scene. <laughs> in this movie, every time a large animal's foot touches the ground, there is a thunderous footstep. Yeah. The doom. And I think it really stood out to me in the Therizinosaurus scene, because Claire is crawling into the water, and behind her, the Therizinosaurus is very slowly coming in that direction. Yeah, the, they have a scene implying that the Therizinosaurus is blind, and that's right. why why it's creeping instead of lunging. Right. And every one of its slow, cautious footsteps creates a boom yeah. shockwave. Yep. And it was just very silly to me. It was, they, they do a lot of that. There's uh, The locusts, of course, Yes, are like, every time the locusts are on screen, people are freaking out because yep. the locusts are just, they're, oh, they're flying all over and they're, they're terrifying, even though they never do anything to anybody. Yeah, like, I, I was very confused by why they kept trying to make the locusts scary because locusts absolutely you know, can be intimidating and will eat meat. Like Sure. And they're big. And they're, so like, yeah, if, if you're afraid of bugs, yes. it's, that's unnerving. Sure. But the movie never shows us them do anything to anyone. No, the big threat that they pose, according to the script, is that they are ravenously eating crops and yeah. they're going to cause a famine. That they're eating our food stocks and the food stocks for livestock. But they are framed by the movie, by the camera work, by the, the actors' reactions to them, very much the same way as the pterosaurs in that scene in the middle of Jurassic World, mm -hmm. where it's just demons filling the air. <laughs> well, what, what they treat them like is the scarab beetles from the mummy films. Yes. <laughs> is that it's like, they just swarm and everyone, that you just, everyone is terrified. These are the scariest, but we never, like, we don't even see them bite someone. No, they don't do anything. Like, the worst they do is tear up a bit of uh, the clothes on a few of the characters one time. Yes. Uh, which could just as well, if you know what locusts and grasshoppers are like, just as well be from their spiky, spiky feet. <laughs> like, that's what I would actually expect that right, was it from. Got, it was an accident. It yeah. got caught on the I feet. I climbed on you and jumped off of you and tore your clothes because I'm a foot long. <laughs> they do successfully break through windows. Yes, they do. As as all monstery things uh, uh, must be able to do. One even punches the hole in a barn door. A wooden barn door. Through a through <laughs> through a wooden plank. Yep. Uh, incidentally, I was thinking about this. We have noted this throughout the entire franchise, and I, I, I don't... You might remember better than me. We only mm -hmm. saw the movie once in the theaters. I don't think we got a Velociraptor jumping through glass in this movie. No, not a Velociraptor, because the Atrociraptors... The Atrociraptors do... Dilophosaurus, uh, there is a scene mm -hmm. later in the movie where Dilophosaurus punches through glass, and it was so odd to me. 
because usually when a dinosaur in these movies punches through glass, it's like a jump. Yeah, my whole body, like I'm, I'm football tackling through the right. glass. This, this animal just kind of like gently pushes its face through the window and it shatters. <laughs> and it was very amusing to me. Yeah, I don't think we actually did get a Velociraptor. I, this might be the first movie in the franchise that we don't get the patented Velociraptor through glass. Yeah. Although we do get other dinosaurs and ancient dinosaur bugs i'm trying to think if beta does it when she's escaping the lab uh, uh oh you know what i think she, she might, might jump through a window she definitely breaks a bunch of like beakers yes. and stuff so she does break glass i that's a good point she might have jumped through the glass yeah <laughs> uh i'm not gonna watch this movie again nope. so somebody who remembers please let us know this will be a mystery for all time <laughs> as far as we're concerned let us know if we're forgetting something so yeah, lots of monstrification. Uh, it, it, they also do it with a bunch of the animals, you know, that make a little like Therizinosaurus being menacing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big herbivore, and it's not that big herbivores can't be dangerous, but you're you're it'd be like a Triceratops sneaking up on someone. Well, well it's like a bison stalking. Yeah, it's like a, that's not why bison are scary. No, that's it, not why they're dangerous. You're yeah, you're adding a a behavior to them. That does not fit. Right. You're, you're making it a, a serial killer. Yes. It is a movie serial killer. But then you also have things like the the Dysonodont bites a person. Yep. Just a person's hand comes close enough to it and it just bites it. And not like a, a get away from me nip. No. Like locked on. Bites and then is, I guess, eating his hand. Yeah. Just holding on. And like it is shown to be just as ferocious as the predatory animals. <laughs> yeah. As the young Carnotaurus on the other hand. Also biting this person. <laughs> And like you, you could be like it was abused or whatnot, and that's why it's aggressive. But they just they take blatantly non carnivorous animals and give them very predatory behaviors. Yes, and then they also take a bunch and just they're like they're like Dimetrodons in the film, mm-hmm. but they don't do anything interesting. They just run at the protagonist with their mouths open. Yes, the whole big, scary time. teeth just just running straight at them. There's nothing behavioral there it's just like like big sailed (laughs) (laughs) pac-man this movie is using basically all the tricks in the monsterification book the ridiculous noises odd behaviors hyper violence super strength punching through glass hyper focus on Mm. the the things that they're trying to attack they also do the simple-minded the sort of single-minded thing yep uh, which brings us back to your comment about Owen's hand uh, thing. Yeah, they have a number of times where they show that the animals just have this robotic response to certain stimuli. Mm-hmm. Owen does his hold the hands out to still the raptors in Jurassic World. Right. These are the raptors he's been working with. Yeah, he's trained these raptors. And that's kind of, that's what I assumed that that was about. Is yes. That this is a signal he has worked out with the raptors, that he holds his hand out and it gives them pause. Exactly. And, you know, that became shorthand for his interactions with Blue. Right. In the rest of that film and in Fallen Kingdom, that when he and Blue would come face to face, he'd put that hand out and it would be, it would remind Blue that he is the, the, I think he says he's the alpha, that he's He's in charge. He's the one in charge. He's the pack leader. Fine. That's all fine. They do that hand thing to almost every dinosaur they have a face-to-face encounter with in this film. Yeah. He does it with Parasaurolophus. Yeah. He does it with the Carnotaurus. Yeah. I guess I think it's both, Carnotaurus and Allosaurus. Yeah, he holds them there for a second so they can dodge out of the way. Yep. He does it 
just over and over and over. Now it's a thing that all the dinosaurs respond to, I guess. And it drove me crazy with the Parasaurolophus because it literally, he does it up until he can finally pet the Parasaurolophus' snout Mm -hmm. and calm it down. And I didn't realize they made a fourth How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> I have seen other people make that comparison. That, it was exactly the same. It, it is just like How to Train Your Dragon. He didn't He didn't close his eyes and look away like you're supposed to because right. he's a hack. Because he doesn't know what he's doing. He wouldn't survive with real dragons. He didn't read that book. Uh, but like, it just is the exact same mentality. And in How to Train Your Dragon, that's an animated movie right. with goofy looking <laughs> pot dragons that well, buzz their wings like a dragon, like a bee. And they also, they, they go very much on like, here are the simple ways that dragons will yes. always respond. Dragons work these ways. They have a certain number of fire shots. Yeah. They get dizzy if you make noise. This it's a cartoon. is doing that. It's very video gamey. It's yes. like what we've said before about the blood in the water trope. Yep. That if there's blood in the water, the sharks will react because they are, they can't help it. Yeah, it's like a video game spawn. That's how you trigger the shark event. And this is another common monster trope among animals in media is a stimulus that always invokes a reaction because the animals are hardwired. The other one they do in this movie is the flare. Yes. Which was another one that was so odd because the whole, so in the first movie, right? Ian and Grant use the flares to distract the T-Rex in a moment to take advantage of its fixation on movement, and it works briefly, mm-hmm. and then that's it. That's the end of that. Yes. In Jurassic World, they call back to that when Claire uses the flare to bring the T-Rex to uh, the to have its big kaiju fight yep. with Indominus. They also use it to signal the feeding for the Rex. They drop the flare next to the goat. Yes, in Jurassic World, they did do that. Now, that's the same T-Rex. Yes, that's, that's, the, that's Rexy. That's Rexy. That is the same T-Rex who already responded to flares. In this movie, they use the flare to distract Giganotosaurus. Mm-hmm. They use a makeshift flare to attract Giganotosaurus and make it go the direction they want it to. Yeah. They used it, what was the other, uh, they used it for the sauropod. At the beginning, there were sauropods that were uh, stopping the work on like a lumber facility because they just wandered in. To get them to leave, they have a guy with a flare on the back of a truck who leads them away. And they just are immediately like, oh, a flare. I guess that's how all the dinosaurs, it is that that's very single-minded, simplistic behavior that turns animals into monsters. It's all that moth DNA they included. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's going to be on a page somewhere. It's actually actually because of that ancient moth DNA. Yeah, right? Well, we had to fill in the gap <laughs> for their silk-making genes. Another thing that comes up with the animals, and this, this sort of leads us more into our scientific concepts, is the notion of apex predator. Yes. So this is another thing that will often happen in movies like this, where they will misuse a term yep uh in a way that makes it more dramatic it's the way that alpha gets used in movies all the time where it's what is the alpha the alpha is the one who's in charge and it kills everybody else and it's the one that is the dominant and blah 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 even though that's not a thing really in nature yeah well a lot of times it's because they are taking part of the term and using a different definition for one of the words yes you know like queen bee 
all it gets portrayed all the time that the queen is in charge of the hive, and that's not true. Right, like a like a queen, like yeah, a monarch. Exactly. Queen bees and ants don't tell the other ants what to do. No. If the other ants don't like that queen, they murder that queen. <laughs> yes. The queen lays eggs. That's what a queen ant and bee does. In this movie, they they and it's only briefly, but it is in a dramatic central scene. They use the term apex predator. They yes. describe Giganotosaurus. So Giganotosaurus and T-Rex meet each other early in the movie. And I think it's Claire or no, it's, no, it's uh, Kayla. Yes. Dewanda Wise's character. Who's awesome. Oh, yeah. The pilot of the, the pilot. Cool she, character. She makes a comment about uh, two apex predators in the in an ecosystem. Soon there will only be one. Yes. Which okay. is a very common way for fictional media to use the term apex predator that apex an apex predator is like Godzilla. Yes, the one above all others is the apex, and that's exactly they're using that definition of apex. That apex means you are at the pinnacle. Yes, but that's not what an apex predator is. No, an apex predator is just a predator who, as an adult, a, a species that as an adult is rarely preyed upon mm-hmm. and can hunt basically anything else in its ecosystem it's the one at the highest trophic level yes it eats everything below it you can have multiple apex predators in an ecosystem happens all the time all the time in the spirit of the month (laughs) there are often multiple croc species in an ecosystem and they are apex predators when south america is a great example where you have the anaconda the jaguar and multiple croc species, multiple mm-hmm. caiman species. Yeah. Those are all apex predators. All of those are apex predators. When they're all full grown, none of them eat each other. Yes. And they can <laughs> eat almost anything else that they want. Yes. So this movie is doing that very common science trope in film of using these terms. Now, I will say mm-hmm. that scene surprised the heck out of me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because, and I think this is the first time, maybe the first time this has ever happened in this franchise. I could be wrong about that. Giganotosaurus and T-Rex f- see each other uh, and they're about to have a fight over a deer carcass, I guess. Yep. Uh, a tiny little, uh, whatever. Uh, and then it's set up. All right, here's our big dino fight. And they bite each other a bit. And then T-Rex walks away. Yep. And I was astonished. That's how you should do it. That was a very, I mean, reasonably realistic predator confrontation. Yeah. The fight was a bit more aggressive and exciting than it would actually be. They'd probably roar at each other. Sure. And they bite a bunch and they're very violent yes. about it. But a small conflict with one of them turning tail, that's that's how most predator-to-predator interactions goes. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was actually a really fairly realistic depiction of a predator encounter. Absolutely. Now, of course, later in the movie, they have a big cage fight. Yes. Uh, even though they're, I guess, under mind control at the time. Well, and, and that is also one of those where not only do they have the fight, but there's not even a deer carcass. Like, it's just... No, they just see each other and, and decide fight. Enough has been enough. They have to <laughs> kill each they other. they decide the end of the movie is coming up. One of us has to die. So... Uh, just like any real-life predator would do, T-Rex uh, hurls Giganotosaurus onto the waiting claws of Therizinosaurus, uh, impaling it and killing it. Yes. And then Therizinosaurus and T-Rex are fine. Right, and then they roar triumphantly next to each other. Yeah, they had no beef. Uh, Giganotosaurus just didn't know when to stop, that evidently. Was, that was the Joker of the movie, as we've been told. Yes, that is literally how it was described <laughs> by Trevorrow, is that it was... Wants to watch the world burn. That they just wanted a dinosaur 
fueled by hate. And that's yeah. and indeed, literally what the goal was. It does get to watch the world burn because the locusts yes. are also monstery enough to be on fire and just fly around yeah. like that. They fly around long enough until they slowly die one by one out of the swarm, raining fiery corpses upon the forest. Right. Much like the anaconda from Anaconda. Yes. That being on fire is a minor inconvenience for these. Yep. Uh, well, they got the same genes that that baryonyx used. Oh, yeah. In the last movie to stick its face through lava. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Now, I guess we should also make a comment when we're talking about animals and accuracy. There are a bunch of feathers in the movie. Yes. Uh, Moros has feathers and they look pretty cool. Pyroraptors got feathers and they look pretty cool. Therizinosaurus is fully feathered and big and scary. And they do make a comment to explain this new presence of feathers in the film. Yes. That Biosyn has now perfected the cloning technique yes. and are no longer putting in genes to fill the gaps they are Ramsey says they're as pure as they can be they are pure as they can be and they use uh, Moros as that standing example Mm -hmm. of this small fully feathered little theropod and all of the new all the feathered dinosaurs we see are new species yes Quetzalcoatlus Mm -hmm. is all fuzzy so they they do actually draw this line where they're saying these are the realistic realistic for this franchise (laughs) visually realistic (laughs) these are the ones that we changed that one incorrect aspect of some of their appearance yes oh we didn't change any of the other parts but this one aspect we've changed because they are pure dna i did notice with pyraptor though that it was holding its hands sideways and folding them that is true. Yeah, it wasn't that doing the the sneaker, you know, my f- palms down Velociraptor pose that uh, all the others were still doing. It had its hands in an anatomically more ah, correct position. So they put some effort into. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like they did, they did think through that aspect a little bit. Now they also then have Pyraptor swim like a penguin. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> it swims, but it doesn't actually swim like a penguin because it does the side-to-side motion. Oh, I see. I, I, I didn't notice. I saw it flapping its its wing it, arms a bunch. It flaps its wing arms, but it also does the side-to-side gator Like, Well, it's not even a gator swim. It's a shark swim. Yeah. Even though its tail feathers are broad and flat like a dolphin tail. Yeah. Yeah, I, I missed that. Yeah. I, yeah. It's... Yeah. That was a... Yeah. The dinosaurs are just kind of doing whatever, the, whatever they want to do yeah. for the movie. Yeah. Well, and also, like, it, it swims under a frozen lake, uh, which is another one of those yes. where... And it punches its way up mm-hmm. through the lake with such force that it leaps up through the ice. Like a video game character. Like a video game character, yes. <laughs> the, the dinosaurs in this movie are movie monsters. They are... A lot of them feel more suited for a Godzilla movie yeah. than for a movie about actual dinosaurs. Which is nothing new in this franchise. No. We are monsterified as we have always been. We expected this, but this movie definitely... Well, what this movie does that the... Uh, at least Jurassic World still attempted uh, to, to maintain is that this movie gets rid of any of the semblance that they're animals. Yes. Uh, like, it really does... There's a couple of scenes where, like, we see Dreadnoughtus just lounging in a pond, mm-hmm. eating plants... Uh, which is another one of those where it's like, that's, it's a pretty scene, but also are you doing that just because it's pretty or because it's a sauropod and you put it in water? Cause that's the classic right. way to show them that's the classic trope. Uh, so like we have a couple of moments like that, but we don't really have any moments of just 
ignoring animals being animals yeah like the only time we get that are uh exposition scenes of showing them the ones that have gotten out into the wild running alongside horses and you know flying in the net like that's the only time we never get any interactions Mm -hmm. that capture that these are animals every single plot significant scene of the dinosaurs is 100 percent monstrified yeah. I can't think of one that isn't, at least. Yeah. And so it, they really just ditched the, like, yeah, we established in, you know, a few films ago that they're animals. We don't need to establish that again. It's kind of <laughs> how it feels. Well, let us continue to transition into uh, talking about the scientific concepts. Mm-hmm. So this is another thing we always like to look at is not just your animal depictions, but what scientific ideas come up in this yeah. film. Now, obviously, a lot of the stuff that we've discussed before in this franchise, right, using genetic material to reconstruct ancient animals is a thing here. Here, there's much more discussion about genetic editing and purity of DNA and stuff like that. Uh, They use they use the term genetic power. Yeah. Again, which is one over. They've borrowed from uh, the original Jurassic Park Mm -hmm. where uh, Malcolm is back in this movie to tell us that genetic power is bad because it's basically nukes. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's funny because this is one of the things, uh, one of my biggest misgivings about the first Jurassic Park is this very heavy handed message in the movie that scientists using new impressive techniques and technologies is inherently dangerous Yes, because it can't, it's going to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that that concept that scientists are always just just a moment away from overstepping. Yes, and indeed, I see Jurassic Park as one of the most frequently referenced examples mm-hmm. when people are having conversations about, oh, sci- oh, well, you better, you shouldn't do that. You've seen Jurassic Park, stuff goes wrong. Yep. Your scientists were so concerned with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. It is this, again, a very, very common movie trope of science as inherently dangerous and irresponsible. That that we have tampered with something we were never meant to tamper with, and ergo, by the the fundamental laws of, you know, science or karma or whatever, that things, there will be a comeuppance. Yes. That there will be a, a bill due. And the bill comes due. <laughs> <laughs> that regardless... If when we dip our toes into realms that humans were not meant to walk, mm-hmm. things are going to go wrong, which is is a fair like there there is an aspect of that that is right. Well, a we fair, sh- we should be careful. Yes, we should caution. always be careful. We should be ethical. Right? We should exactly. keep keep these things in mind. There should be a healthy level of caution and self restraint, apprehension when we deal with something brand new that has potentially grand consequences or implications or applications. You know, the first time we make nanotech, yeah, we should be wary of what all are we unboxing with this and how do we want to go about it? And how might this be used irresponsibly? And that is something that is interesting that comes up in this movie. This film highlights... It takes the original concept of we, we've cloned dinosaurs, mm-hmm. we've brought them back to life using ancient DNA, and this movie has taken that several steps down the line to say, 
That is an incredible feat of genetic engineering. What else could be being done with that technology? Yes. So we've got uh, human cloning, mm-hmm. which was introduced in the last movie. And this movie, just brief, just the briefest of touching upon the implications of that. Uh, it doesn't really talk about it. A person calls another human being intellectual property. Yes. Which is a very, oh, you can make a whole movie about that. Absolutely. Like, uh, uh, there, there's the, uh, there is a film about that where there's the clones for celebrities. Uh, oh, yeah. For organ transfer. Uh, was it was that the plot of Altered Carbon? Uh, n- not quite. Uh, okay, they're, they're, I'm not thinking of something different. Yeah, though. in that one they had cloned backups. Uh, That's what it was. That That's they could it. download. I've, their I've just got Deach and Lackman on yeah. my brain because <laughs> I, I didn't know she was in this movie and she showed up and I was like, oh, something ridiculous is about to happen because yes. it always does when this person is on screen. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah, that like there's interesting dialogues to be had and they they apply some of those ideas, but they it doesn't really get. Right. Discussed heavily. We see uh, good scientists Mm -hmm. trying to utilize this genetic power for uh, curing disease and Mm -hmm. such. At least we are told that that is a thing that we could do. Yes. But we don't actually see it. The bad scientists have genetically engineered a dangerous plague of locusts. That that only eat competitors' crops. Yes. Uh, Whether or not that was the intent uh, I, I feel like it was a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, I think it was in the intent that they would not eat biosyn seeded crops. Mm-hmm. You know, that they would eat the competitors out of business and they would have control over the wor- world food source. From what I got with the movie, the mistake was that the locusts were reproducing and not dying at the rate that they thought they would. Gotcha. So, so they, they became, got out of control. It became a literal plague instead of just a new pest. Right. Like, which is an interesting, uh, but it doesn't really get like what it, it's kind of like what they did with the last one of weaponizing the dinosaurs where they they talk about it, but they don't really go into the the complexity and morals of that. Like, right. This I, movie does very similar of like this person has done a bad thing with the science and that is bad. And these people are trying to do a good thing with the science and that is good. We also have people doing uh, stuff that is just kind of stuff to do, I guess. Yeah. Like a character makes herself a clone. Yep. I because she could. Yeah. They never really go into the the. There's not that same level of discussion. Right. In it, well, it, the first two films. Yes. This concept of the implications of genetic power and genetic technology isn't really a central theme of this movie. It's. The backdrop, mm-hmm. typically at best. Yes. The other reason that backing up a little in the conversation to the, that concept of inevitable overstep by mm-hmm. scientists, the other reason that's hilarious to me whenever it's brought up in movies as just a given is that they, they treat it like it's this obvious thing like, how, how did you not know you were going too far? Right. You know, I flew all the way to this island on this mechanical flying machine with whirling <laughs> blades to watch a computerized image tell me the science that you've done like at what point you know people have said that every single time when the printing press was made people are like people are going to not remember things anymore if we can write it down and make books right you know why would you even have to use your brain we've always done that so it's though the cautionary tale isn't isn't unwarranted that sense of given hubris Whenever a scientist touches on a topic that is edgy for today, right, 
Well, well, and I think that what these movies have done, basically the whole franchise, and this movie does it as well, is you introduce these concepts. You say genetic engineering and big, scary idea. You have a character like Malcolm question the ethics and say, oh, this could go wrong. And then you have stuff go wrong, but often not actually because of the scientific applications. Mm -hmm. Like the stuff that goes wrong in these movies is rarely because you're the kind of genetic experimentation you're doing is unethical or inappropriate. It's because you built a shoddy zoo. Yes. Or your lab practices are terrible. Like at the end of this movie, the whole preserve area gets lit on fire. Yeah. And and is destroyed not because there were like unethical scientific, oh, we didn't think about what this power would mean. Oh, it's because the lab's procedure for destroying the locusts was to set their own building on fire. Yeah, to ignite a bunch of automated (laughs) flamethrowers. Yeah. So the genetic power, as they keep... That phrase is so silly. The (laughs) genetic power that they are wielding in this movie is not why everything goes wrong. It's because you are doing doing things without regulation and without forethought, much like in the previous movies where it's like, there was nothing wrong with resurrecting these ancient animals like that that in and of itself does not cause catastrophe Mm -mm. what causes catastrophe is that in the movie they are monstrous hyper-violent beings and you didn't put any real precautions in place to stop them from being hyper-violent but the movie puts the dangerous circumstances alongside characters talking about the potential ethical and and dangerous side side effects of this new technology and that in and of itself is pushing this again common sci-fi trope of new technology dangerous bad scary well and that's that's one more area where i feel like the more recent films in this film have oversimplified the discussion that happened in the original film where you know Mal- malkin talks about that the level of control they're attempting isn't right but also one of the big points he makes is that you did this new thing but you you didn't pause. You immediately turned it into a theme park. Mm-hmm. And that that's really where the issue is. Like, right. And, and now he also is demonizing the science science very much in that film, but that, that the film does make the point that you're the capitalist way you went about it mm-hmm. of you did this amazing new thing. And now you want to put it on a lunchbox and just sell it. And that that's the issue, is a misuse of this technology. Right. Not the technology itself. And not the dinosaurs. No. It's what the people are doing with the dinosaurs, with the technology. And and this the, this film starts and ends in two very different weird ways in regards <laughs> to that message, where it starts very much on, like, how in the world can we learn to live in a world with dinosaurs? Yes. As if they're this supernatural like oh my gosh the ghostbusters vaults opened up ghosts are everywhere how are we gonna function with this new metaphysical reality we live in right which is something the movies have always done yeah more and more as the franchise has gone on and especially the jurassic world franchise of treating these as though they're not again they're monsters they're not animals they're not just things in the ecosystem they are inherently dangerous unpredictable Bad news. Yes. 
but then by the end of the film, the narration explains that, well, I, I guess... I guess we'll just have to learn to live with them. Yep. And then there's a bunch of shots of like, now there's ceratopsians just hanging out with elephants and yep. mosasaurs hanging out with whales. They are just part of the world now, which is actually a really interesting concept. Yes. This is the, they touched on this at the end of the last movie, the notion of what, what does it mean for this level of invasive species to be unleashed upon the world? Which is a really, like, that is that is actually a fascinating discussion because it is directly relevant to conversations that we in the real world are having all the time. Absolutely. What happens when you introduce a new species to an ecosystem? What effect does that have? Is there a way to remove that species? If you do, is that just in interfering and making a mess? Like, well, it's this wonderful, complicated ecological discussion. Well, and it's also got a very similar feeling to what has happened in a lot of conservation situations where we have protected this species and helped its numbers recover from past, you know, damages passed over hunting or habitat mm -hmm. loss or, you know, poisoning, you know, from pollution or whatever it is. But now portions of their previous habitat are suburbs and cities right. and it's been changed housing districts and so now you have you know mountain lions or bears or crocs that are coming back in you know and moose and deer coming back into human society as their numbers and range forcibly expand and so it, it the concept there is a very interesting one mm -hmm. but they don't that's not what the film's about and they don't actually actually discuss it in any way so it's just treated as this no. it was a problem but now it's not mostly for a happy ending well and, and that's kind of the way that a lot of the scientific the big scientific premises in this movie happen is that the movie brings up the question of genetic engineering mm -hmm. and medical use and corrupt corporation use of this this scientific technology of invasive species and of ecological change and what danger do the dinosaurs pose to the ecosystems and how are they assimilating and it it touches on all these things but so briefly that it ends up just portraying them in a very very simplistic way yeah. dinosaurs are in the ecosystem that is inevitably dangerous yes people are using genetic technology that is inevitably dangerous Dinosaurs have been in the ecosystem for a while now. They have inevitably assimilated. Dr. Wu created a cure to fix the locust outbreak, and it inevitably works. Yep. It It's all touched on very quickly and with and, and very shallowly. Well, yeah, it's, it, they're, they're scary when the plot needs them to be scary, but then they are heroic when the plot needs them to be heroic. The Dr. Wu locust cure was one of my biggest scientific sticking points. Because they have Malcolm in a lecture talking about the dangers of genetic power. Yes. And one of the examples he gives, which is a legitimate concern in our real world when it comes to genetic manipulation or over-sterilization and things like that, is the creation of a superbug. Yes, a superbug in the real world. If we end up accidentally creating bacteria or pathogens that are resistant to our antibiotics and such... Yes. They, you could end up with a pathogen that can spread far and wide because it overcomes all of our barriers yeah, against it. We don't currently have a way to stop it. And then the film ends with Wu creating 
a genetic pathogen to spread among the locusts. A literal superbug. A literal superbug <laughs> to take out the locusts. And the movie makes no parallel between those two of like, right. are you sure? Like, There's not even a moment when someone's like, haven't you done enough? Right. Like, you already made these giant insects that are causing all these problems. Why do you think manipulating their genes further would have a guaranteed success? But the movie's just like, nope, that's him turning over a new leaf. Well, it, it treats, just like the animals in the movie, are they, they behave exactly and simply the way that the movie needs them. They're monsters when mm-hmm. they need to be monsters. They're in danger when they need to be in danger. They're cute for a second when they need to be cute. The scientific concepts are scary when they need to be, or they're hopeful when they need to be. And there isn't much, it's the kind of, this is the kind of movie that could easily spur lots of fascinating discussions Mm -hmm. in classrooms and at, you know, gatherings or on our Discord server, perhaps. But the movie doesn't actually have those discussions. Well, and it's the thing that it's lacking in the two different ends of the spectrum of the, the science, you know, where here it's scary, but here it's hopeful, is that as far as we've are shown none of the science is executed differently like Mm. we're not shown that like the reason the locusts were so bad is because of a lack of testing but then the pathogen for the locusts was tested thoroughly you know that would be a that's a great example of bad science and good science right that's what a lot of other things will do that where we created a monster because we made the serum in our first test was just on a person Right. Yeah. We didn't do it's the that's the Green Goblin scenario. We didn't yes. do clinical trials. We didn't test it enough. Yeah. So we created a monster. It's over exact you know, exaggerated. Sure, sure. But there that is a real issue. There have been multiple times in scientific history where drugs or new technologies have gotten out and then we found out that yeah, they were not tested thoroughly and there's actually a really bad issue with them. That's why there are so many rigorous testing procedures to get things approved exactly. or or through uh, regulations. So seeing and, a careful handling of the science versus a, a shoddy one would have been interesting. And this movie does and now again, this is a very common trope in movies. A problem was caused by unregulated application of something oh you didn't do any testing and now there's a monster and then it is solved by unregulated instant application of the good version of the thing which is not at all unique to this i like the marvel movies have done that a bunch of times well it's it's the idea of it's not the quality of the scientific procedure you used but the quality of the scientist yes the intent the 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 moral uh, integrity yes. of the scientist doing when whatever it is. The bad guy did it. It made a monster. When the good guy does it, it solves the problem. Yes, and everything's better. Which is once again one of those common like that. The the there are <laughs> good as in capital G scientists and bad capital B yes, scientists. Evil. And the science they create reflects them. <laughs> yes, it brings out who they are inside. Yeah. yeah, this this movie has a lot of that. Well, speaking of scientists, we also like in our Silver Screen Science discussions to talk about how movies portray scientists. Which we have a lot of this time. There's a, yeah, so this is something that is interesting because this was one of our uh, sort of lamentations of the Jurassic World franchise up to this point is that there hasn't been a lot of scientists uh, on screen. Yeah, there's science. 
Right. But we don't actually see the scientists who did any of it. The, the original Jurassic Park trilogy, scientists are the main characters. Each yep. movie, there are at least two main character scientists. The Jurassic World franchise has not. But this one, there's a ton of scientists in this. Well, they made up for the last two films. They sure did. <laughs> including paleontologists. Mm-hmm. So we have Dr. Wu uh, from the first movie, B.D. Wong, being his genetic engineering guy. We have Dr. Malcolm the Chaotician. We've got Grant and Sattler, our paleontologists. And we've got Dodgson. We've got Dodgson here, <laughs> who is the evil genetic scientist in charge of Biosyn, who's doing all the bad stuff. And they never made it clear how much research, like, he actually does. No, he's he's there to be the generic twenty early 21st century guy in charge of a corporation. Yeah, where a lo- the public assumes that this person in charge of the company that makes tech is also techie and smart and a genius. Right. Even though they are not typically the ones doing most of the research. Right. And it's kind of implied that he is scientifically minded and that he's doing some stuff. Yeah. I think he's Dr. Dodgson. So, like, the implication is there. You can easily make that assumption. But we don't see him do science. No. It could have just as well been the intent of the film that he is a scientist in title, but not actually the one... Right. Doing much of the work. He's a scientist in title and he's a billionaire uh, (laughs) by trade. And he's really (laughs) prominent and eccentric, but he's not actually doing a lot of that work. Yep. He's not actually all that impressive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, as far as our scientists go, uh, there's not a ton of scientists doing science. Yeah, we have. we, We know they're all scientists because they have doctor in front of their name. Oh, we also have Doctor Ma- Doctor Lockwood. Yes, Charlotte Lockwood. Yes, who's I just looked down at my list, and mm-hmm. she is also featured in this movie. Uh, who is really the only one that we see discussing any of the science that they are doing, right. other than Wu wanting to cure the locusts? Right. Now we don't get paleontology science Mm-mm. in the film. We we encounter Doctor Grant at a dig site, but we don't see any of the digging really that. That's just where Ellie goes to find him and take him uh, to this to the movie. Well, we have one scene of him just giving, I guess, his daily impromptu motivational speech oh, yeah. <laughs> to the grad students and volunteers who are on their phones looking very bored. Yeah. While he just is like, we dig because in these rocks are truth. Right. And it's. That's not paleontology. That's just reestablishing <laughs> that you are grumpy about living dinosaurs. Yes. But it's random. So, uh, Dr. Sattler, Ellie, is awesome in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, she's being, she's she's cool. She's doing cool stuff. She's determined and motivated, and she's driving the plot. Uh, she, but mostly she's doing, like, scientific espionage. Yeah. Well, and she's also working with a, a conservation, uh, a, a, a biohazard, like, investigation Yes. Group. Which is really interesting because that is a totally reasonable trajectory that someone like her could take. Yes. That she started out studying fossil plants, but has moved into more environmental sciences. That, uh, we know people who have done that. Oh, yeah. and we, and That's we, a real thing. We see a bit of that when she's diagnosing the, the Triceratops. Mm-hmm. That she has an idea of not just fossil plants, but their effects and the the interactions between them and the other organisms. So like it's it's a, a neat trajectory, but yeah. she doesn't actually mention any paleobotany. Like, no, 
there's the fact that she was a paleontologist doesn't really come up other than that she has a connection to Grant. Right. Mostly so, she's doing corporate subterfuge. Yes. I, I think the the one person who talks the most about their actual field of research is Malcolm. Yes. But I don't He's, actually he know gives a lecture. anything he says could actually be considered chaos theory. <laughs> yeah, he's he's mostly just kind of using his platform as a celebrity scientist to philosophize. Yeah, and which, morally spout. Which is also not an unrealistic <laughs> thing for a scientist in the real world to do. There's a lot of, there's a number of celebrity scientists who who have gotten in the habit of just saying things and everyone being like, well, they said it, you know, so. Yes, that's a scientist. It's probably pretty deep. <laughs> So the the ones that we get to see, like, actually involved in their science, kind of. Uh, we see Grant say some stuff about dinosaurs. Yeah. Uh, in, in sort of the, well, this is the expert who's going to give us scientific exposition, which is a very common thing for movies to do with scientists. Mm-hmm. You are here to tell us things about the what's going on. Although Grant doesn't do that any more than anyone else in this movie no the pilot i think gives us more specific info about the dinosaurs in the reserve than grant does yes with due to the idea that they've been there before and have insider knowledge and like but yeah owen knows a bunch of stuff about the dinosaurs because he's worked with them Mm -hmm. and grant is implied to know stuff about the dinosaurs because he is a dinosaur expert which is kind of a cool dichotomy yeah. like yeah that those are two different ways in this fictional setting to know about the dinosaurs uh so we don't we don't we get just a little bit of that like scientist as exposition source yes uh but not too much we have dr Wu, who is the evil scientist who's now trying to do good mm-hmm. and then does it yep we've got dr dodgson who is the evil scientist trying to do evil and so he does <laughs> and then we've got charlotte lockwood who probably is the one whose science is most relevant in the plot yeah that we learn that she is the one who discovered the process to clone a human being from a single person's genetic material yeah she is it is explained that before she died she created Maisie as a clone of herself and impregnated herself with her clone baby mm-hmm. and was even able to use her genetic engineering acumen to remove a genetic disease or disorder that she had to take that away from her clone, from Maisie, so yes. that Maisie doesn't have it. And this is plot significant because Dr. Wu says that technology could be the secret to reversing the locust plague if we can edit their DNA to stop them somehow, that that is what we need to do. And so the way that that plot point comes in, and this is where we get tropey, mm-hmm. is he says, Charlotte Lockwood discovered this technique, but she's gone. And I need to know that technique. So I need to study Maisie, the clone child that she created. Yeah, the one that she because the the specifics is that Maisie was born then the genetic disease was discovered and she rewrote Maisie's DNA, living DNA. Yes. Throughout her whole body. And that's what Wu wants to do with the locusts to basically give them a shorter lifespan and, and wipe them out or some aspect of that. Right. And that, yeah, that this, this technique, this technology, this knowledge was lost with, with, with Charlotte, with Charlotte and ergo cannot be recreated because the one genius who came up with it is dead now. 
And this is a trope. This is a dramatic trope. So obviously from a movie making standpoint, it makes total sense why you would do this. Mm -hmm. The one person who could have helped us is gone. And there's no way for us to, to figure out how to do it unless we get the MacGuffin that helps us to figure it out. As storytelling goes, that's a great recipe for drama and intrigue. Yes. But scientifically, it implies both that Charlotte was an uber genius and the only person capable of coming up with this technique, and also that she was such a bad scientist that she didn't write any of it down yeah, or save the data anywhere, that no one has Maisie's DNA on file or Charlotte's notes on file. Well, and, and a bunch of that, that weirdness to that scenario uh, is because... In the last film, we were told that Charlotte died and her father cloned her right? because he was so distraught and that Macy is the is the grief clone right. of his daughter. Now we're told that Charlotte cloned herself and we're never given a reason why, just that she wanted to be a mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess a sperm donor was just off the table right. for some reason. So it makes sense why she had to keep it secret, because cloning humans is, isn't <laughs> legal. Horribly unethical. Yeah. Doesn't make sense why she didn't just go to the sperm bank, well, or adopt, yeah. or any of the other ways that we have single people able to have children. Yeah. And and this really puts her role as, as the movie's kind of key scientific figure mm-hmm. in a weird light, because the movie depicts her as this incredible genius whose brilliance is lost and whose scientific discovery only exists within the body of this child. Mm -hmm. Putting her up on this pedestal while at the same time not giving any actual explanation for the apparently unethical and... Irresponsible. Irresponsible and pointless. Like, she did a thing... Because she could, but perhaps didn't stop to think if she should. And yet the movie constantly is trying to portray that she she was the 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 moral beacon of genetic power. Yes. That like she she was the sign the, the one that truly embodied how this science should be used. And but this, we're never shown that. <laughs> no. And this brings us back to that dichotomy of when the bad guys do it, it's bad science, and when the good guys do it, it's good science. Even though there's not really a significant difference in what exactly they're doing. Yes. They're they're doing pretty much the same thing, but by plot convenience, it is bad when they the bad guy does it and good when the good guy does it. And that's that's basically what happens here. Like we're never ex- told why it was necessary for Maisie to be cloned. Mm-hmm. And then why it was such a secret to rewrite her DNA. Like, at that point, she has film of her pregnant and of Maisie being born. Yes. So it's not like no one could have known that this was happening. You're, you have right. baby it, clothes. I, I'm pretty sure there are other people in the background of her video. Yeah. She's in a lab. So why didn't you just publish on your miracle cure uh, thigh shot? And, and that's <laughs> another very common sci-fi trope is the the notion of an incredible discovery being made, but then remaining hidden until it is uncovered by the right people 
And th- this is one of those science tropes that, again, makes good dramatic sense, but ignores the reality of science where we publish things and we are collaborative and that it, it would be very difficult to keep things like that hidden and that there it isn't common for people to want to keep things like that hidden if you've created a miracle cure or whatever, but also bleeds over into real world conspiracies about oh, discoveries being hidden from the public or locked behind paywalls, which unfortunately sometimes things are locked behind paywalls. And some of you may be thinking that, well, but there are historical, you know, there's a historical precedent for that we have lost the knowledge for certain Mm -hmm. technology and discoveries throughout history where like, you know, Greek fire was one of those classics of we, we have documents of this thing existing, you know, that can't be put out by water, but we, we don't actually have the documents of how they made it and people have not yet rediscovered, uh, or at least for a long time. I don't know if maybe this is an old example, but right. You know, that concept, uh, a lot of Tesla's ideas are lorded that way mm-hmm. of these, uh, these genius, amazing things that we, that, that he took with him because he was an eccentric and didn't write them down. Right. But those examples are typically rare. Mm-hmm. There, that that's not just like every great scientist has their world-changing invention that <laughs> oh if only it were more than legend shakes fists they're rare they're not common but also they're often romanticized yes like, nikola tesla was absolutely a brilliant inventor but we have built up this like m- massive persona mm-hmm. of nikola tesla as this Ain't this old timey Tony Stark? Yes, that would have just rocked the planet if oh that darn Edison hadn't gotten in the way. Yes, he was he was wrong, but no, he was not just the brilliant mind that we all missed out on. Right, and th- this is a very common science trope of the genius. Yes, the one genius who was the only one who could do this and who did it all by themselves. We do this with Darwin and Einstein and Newton and these scientists where we act like they, they did all their stuff by themselves. Yes. And they that, that these discoveries weren't the product of decades of work building upon the work of many, many different scientists, but of one genius who solved all the problems and was fantastic, uh, much like how Charlotte is portrayed in this movie. And the other reason that that, for, personally for me, always bugs me so much is that it also implies... That had Tesla never been born, we would have never come up. No one else from then to now would have ever come up with the inventions that he came up with. Right. That it's only that brain, which was for some reason so incredibly different from every other, from the billions of other human brains that have existed <laughs> since then, could have conceived of those things. And that's not... At, if you show us a picture of a thing, most humans, <laughs> with our combined intellect and creativity... Once we know it's possible, that humans are really good at figuring out how to do it. There's a reason that every time like a Olympic record is broken, it's not much longer <laughs> until someone breaks that record. Because now we know, I didn't know I could do it that fast. Well, if you can do it that fast, I'm going to do it this fast. This... It's not unreasonable that we would just go, oh, I didn't know that you could do that. I'm going to start thinking of how to do that. This is a common media science trope. Media, both in the sense of like movies and stuff, but like just general popular discussion, yeah. this shows up. In news headlines, this idea of innate genius yes. or the, the one person who could be the one to do this thing. Well, you see those conversations of like, will there ever be another Einstein? Right. It's like that. 
I think, per- I think it was Stephen Jay Gould who had a, a line about like, I, I'm less concerned about the dimensions of Einstein's brain than I am about the certainty that there are other people just as brilliant as that who are working in sweatshops or yeah. something in underprivileged environments. Like, first off, the the evidence for innate genius is not good. <laughs> like, the evidence is actually it's against it. <laughs> extremely popular fiction trope. Yes. There is no scientific support that there are just certain individuals that are just born more brilliant innately right. than the rest of humanity. That's not a thing as far as we understand. It's really, it's a really handy concept if you want to create a dramatic plot. Yes. Or if you want to further uh, eugenicist ideals. Yes. Those yeah. are the cases where that concept is real handy. It's good for making superheroes and bigots. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it. So th- this movie really, hint- or like one big part of the plot hinges on that. Mm-hmm. And they just keep harping on it. And it it definitely rings hollow just, just from the f- fact of like you have an entire facility of scientists who have somehow figured out how to make effectively pure clones of extinct dinosaurs. And none of them, not a single one of them can help you figure this out. And that, that we, we are lacking that real world collaborative aspect of science as we often end up doing in, in movies like yep. this, where especially since the science itself is secondary at best to what the plot is, yeah. the scientists in this movie, just like the scientific concepts and just like the animals in the movie, are mostly plot devices. They show up just long enough to spur on what's happening in the scene or to provide exposition, but we don't really get... Right, we, we don't really get the animals acting like animals. We don't really get the scientific concepts explored in depth in interesting ways. And we don't really get the scientists doing science or demonstrating scientific ideals or behaviors. They're scientists because the plot needs them to be scientists. Yeah, it's it's and, and it makes sense. Like it is much easier to present a single celebrity scientist versus a lab. Sure of researchers like that for storytelling purposes one is much easier to work with but this this does really take it to the extreme where it, every single you know, malcolm is just the most insightful person mm-hmm. when it comes to the complex workings even when he's just talking about corporate structure yes like maybe well, when he's I- just talking about how promotions can make you blind Yes, he's still correct because he said it. And that's another common trope with scientists in movies is it's the person who is correct about stuff. Yeah, they're just they're so smart that obviously what they must say must be right. And this is actually something that is a very common occurrence, even just in a not just like a media, but just a person to person. Like I've had people say that to me because I'm a scientist. yeah. Yeah, you work in science. You must be. Super smart yep. and know all sorts of stuff. My and dad used to, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, my dad used to reach out to me, like text me with for asking for medical advice. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. Yes. I have no idea. Thing, where people have asked me, I'm like, what do you think? I was like, I don't. <laughs> yep. Please don't ask me that. And this is why we were, we were always so happy with the fact that in Jurassic Park, which we also have done a silver screen science episode on, where we discuss this, we see specialization where yes. Grant has particular knowledge that he applies and compares with the dinosaurs throughout the movie. 
Sattler has particular scientific knowledge specifically about plants and ecosystems and uh, even more so in Tremors, yes. which we have also done a Silver Screen Science episode on where we have a character asked a scientific question and specifically say, why are you asking me all these questions? I don't know any of these things. Yes, that <laughs> that due to the typically longer degree of education and higher student loans required yep. <laughs> to become a scientist, <laughs> the assumption is that you are just a smarter person now. Which, yeah, that that's a, it's a pet peeve of mine in films, but it's also a pet peeve of mine in the real world. That yes. Just portraying that because you have niche knowledge, you, your brain is superior somehow. And, and I can't tell you how to do anything to your car. <laughs> I can't, I can change a tire and i'm i know where the get the oil goes on my vehicle just like grant is terrible with technology yes. <laughs> like a mechanic is just as informed as i am just <laughs> on a very different topic so from a science perspective this movie is full of tropes yeah this is like this is a master class in science tropes in fiction well it it, it this is one of those where it's not just like oh there's a bunch of them the portrayal of scientists is tropes. Like yes. I can't think of a single example that isn't a tropey example. Right. You know, it's, it's all the man, it's the evil scientist. It's the scientist who was evil and is trying to redeem himself by creating a single miracle yeah. fix. It's the brilliant genius who created a thing and then it was lost. It, they are very one note, just like the animals tend to be very one note, which renders them movie monsters instead of animals. A lot of the scientific things of interest in this movie are touched on very briefly, which leaves them very one-dimensional. Yeah, very hollow. Which, from a storytelling perspective, you also have a lot of characters and a right. lot of events that you're trying to get through, so it, it makes sense that it got pared down, but the fact is that the science and the scientists and the animals are very pared down. Now, as usual, and if you've listened to us before, you've heard us say this uh, already, none of this makes it a bad movie. No. We are firmly of the opinion that you can have bad science and not necessarily be a bad movie. Mm -hmm. We're just discussing this sort of academic perspective on wh what scientific ideals does this all touch on. Yeah, if, if you're using, you know, real world scientific professions and scientific concepts to tell your story, how are you doing that? Yeah, and what? how does that reflect in your audience mm -hmm. what ideas are you putting out there into the minds of your audience uh, like we've talked about before there are tons of sci-fi movies that still influence the way we think about science yep jurassic park is one of them so in silver screen science we are always interested in sort of the broader concepts what what is there to talk about scientifically not just the nitpicking or talking about whether or not we personally liked or hated the movie. Yeah, or did they get every single species as correct as they could have? Right. But we also acknowledge that nitpicking the little tiny things in a movie and ranting or raving about how much we liked or did not like a movie are tons of fun. Yep. So if you want to hear us rant and or rave about this movie, if you're on Patreon, we will release a more thoughts episode. But as for nitpicking, at the end of every Silver Screen Science episode, we like to provide ourselves an opportunity just for a moment to get real annoyed about something very specific <laughs> in a section we call our mini rants. Will, what is your mini rant about Jurassic World 
Dominion. My mini rant has to do with our introduction to Grant. Uh, when when Grant is brought into the film, we start with him on the dig site, but the reason he's brought into the film is because Ellie has captured one of the monster locusts mm-hmm. and has brought it to Grant to get his second opinion and ultimately pull him into the plot. Right. And she's she says something on the note of like I needed I needed you to identify or I needed a second opinion. Right. You know, something like that. And Grant says effectively, I, I don't remember word for word, but I, I think it's abdomen, wings, mandibles. He goes, it's definitely a locust, abdomen, wings, or uh, uh, abdomen, thorax, mandibles. Yeah, something like that. I think that. it's thorax, because I remember <laughs> saying, abdomen, thorax, mandibles. And then they start talking about like, what, <laughs> what is that? And what... Right. But that that's the way you showed him idea locust is by just naming insect parts. Insect like, body parts. Well that definitely a locust. Abdomen, thorax, mandibles. I mean check. Mandibles <laughs> do rule out true bugs. Because <laughs> it doesn't have a siphon mouth. But in no way does that idea does like you that's might as well have just had it say legs, eyes, antenna. Like, that's a bug. That's oh, it's an insect, all right. If I've ever seen one, and like maybe what maybe the implication is that he was saying yes, it has the right abdomen and thorax and mandibles. Yes, for a locust, but that's not what he says. No, it's like you may have been going <laughs> that he was IDing specific features of those categories. Right, but yeah, as you said, that's not what he says, <laughs> and. I I personally feel that's being very generous to whoever wrote that line, that that was your intention. You could have just said it. That's definitely a locust. It's got all the right features. <laughs> you know, like, right. It's, so you didn't pull up a, a diagram on Google of the parts of a locust and have your actor read them. Yes. And that like <laughs> also you could have just had him say it's definitely a locust. Right. I would have trusted that Grant knows how to idea locust. Sure. Without you having him just say insect body part <laughs> buzzwords. Oh, it, and that's so early in the film. It's when we meet him. <laughs> it's his introduction. And just like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, as it turns out, Grant saying dumb stuff is not <laughs> limited to his first uh, scene. Because I, my mini rant is also about a dumb thing that Grant says. <laughs> Grant, they do not do Grant a whole lot of justice in this movie. No, they don't. Toward the end of the movie, we mentioned this scene. This is my mini rant where Owen and Grant and Maisie are looking for Beta. And they're walking through the, the dark corridor or whatever. Yeah, the you know, the typical pipe room. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that all facilities have. Yeah. We're down in the engine room. And Grant is saying ominous things about raptors. And he's talking about how the raptors hunt. And he says something to the effect of, we used to think that they disemboweled their prey, but now they know to go for the jugular. Yeah, we know they're smart enough for... Yeah, and that, that's what the implication sounded like well, I, to me. I think is, he says, now we know they were smart enough to go straight for the jugular. Right. Something to that effect. Which... I'm going to pause the quote there for a moment. Going for the jugular is not like a super... This is the doors all over again. Yes. That's not like a super intelligent... Like, cats go for the jugular. Yep. And wild dogs go for the jugular. That's just a thing that carnivores do. Yeah. That's That's a common behavior. When you show your big dinosaurs fighting in these movies, they go for the jugular. Oh, yep. Like, they bite each other's necks all the time. Well, and also the implication that that's somehow better than disemboweling. Like, 
having my throat ripped out and being disemboweled, both are pretty equally fatal. Like, I I don't know why you think one is a better way to do that. Yeah, so they're doing this thing again where they're like, oh, the raptors are scary and smart and terrifying because they do this thing that actually lots and lots of animals do. Yep. That, that but then he continues. He says they go for the jugular. Arteries, veins, sometimes both at the same time. Both of them. And that is the point in the movie <laughs> where Will and I uh, stopped being able to keep a straight face. We couldn't hold in our laughs anymore. That was the funniest line in the movie. What do you mean both at the same time? What does that mean? Arteries, of, they're both in there. If you bite a neck... There aren't predators that are like, oh, I'm a vein specialist. Yeah. Oh, really? Me? I'm all <laughs> arteries. That's weird. <laughs> it's like lion. That's what lions and tigers, that's what makes them different. Yeah. Yep. It, tigers go for arteries. That's why they're dangerous. <laughs> uh, they get You get the spurting blood. No, if it bites you in the neck, of course it's going for both arteries and veins. <laughs> what? It, and, it's, and it's another one of those where it... It's like, and I'm so, th- this reminds me so strongly of the original mini rant. Yep. Which was Jurassic Park 3 when he says, sounds bigger. It, this, it's such a dramatic line that is clearly meant to be <laughs> like, this is how we're describing how scary this animal is by having our scientist dinosaur expert who is supposed to be one of our smartest and most insightful characters say something utterly idiotic yep (laughs) sometimes both at the same time well it's like saying it's it'll you know it'll when they bite you They'll bite straight through your skin, your muscles, sometimes both. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, what? <laughs> that line, I I will rewatch that scene when it's on YouTube yes. to get the specifics of that line. Because that is, do you know what happens when a frog gets struck, <laughs> a toad gets struck by lightning? Levels of just, that is worth remembering. Yep. Yep. <laughs> this will be chronicled for all the wrong reasons. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening through our sciency discussion of Jurassic World Dominion, the last of the Jurassic World movies? That's how it's being Question branded, mark? That's what they least. keep saying. I'll believe it when I don't see it. Yes. As always, we do not consider ourselves the final word on any of these topics. No. So if you have your own thoughts, or if you disagree with us, which of course, as, as we expect that many of you will on mm-hmm. many counts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, feel free to think that way and even let us know. Uh, we are on the social medias. We have a Discord server these days where lots of fun conversation and chatter goes back and forth. After this episode comes out, for sure, the Silver Screen Science channel will have a bunch of people making comments on their thoughts on this conversation. Please feel free to be part of the conversation. You can find links to the ways to do those things down in the episode description. As we mentioned, if you are on Patreon, we will be releasing a More Thoughts episode for our non-science, just movie thoughts, which in this case we recorded immediately when we got home. Oh, yeah. Because we had so many thoughts. We were full of them. And besides this, we're releasing episodes on our normal schedule, on all of our normal platforms, and it's Croc Month. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, sad to say there were no definite crocs in this movie. There was a snake in the movie. There was a snake. There was a snake on a spit. 
being cooked (laughs) (laughs) in that that place. But it's croc month, uh, the month of June, which means we're doing all sorts of cool croc stuff. By the time this episode comes out, we will also have released our bonus episode, Conserving Crocs with Dr. Marissa Tellez. Very exciting. We've got extra special croc stuff going on on Discord, on social media. We even have a new tier on our Patreon, Crocs and Snakes tier, where you can be part of donations to charitable efforts for conservation. Check out all the stuff as usual. Find all the links down in the episode description. Find our other episodes on all of our Podbean and YouTube and Spotify and wherever you listen. I think that's about enough. I think we have now talked about Jurassic World Dominion quite enough. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In the words of one of the characters from the movie, I don't remember which one. Uh, It might have been Malcolm. It might have been Grant. But as they said, let's finish this. Agreed. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.